the rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today you have me solo again. Single tier. Maureen has been super busy, so yes, it will be a solo podcast avec moi aujourd'hui. But we're gonna have a good time. Um, actually, we're gonna have a pretty depressing time because well, it's me. And we're gonna be talking about climate change and this horrifying IPCC report that has come out and given us very, very limited time to turn things around. And now I am seeing in the news geoengineering pop up again. And this horrifies me. <laughs> it, geoengineering uh, started to be popular, I, I don't know, I'd say about 10 years ago it was, was gaining popularity, but it was hotly debated back then, and it kind of just seemed to fade out of the mainstream, and now it seems to be coming back to the fore, considering we have, well, 12 years, but people are now saying we have maybe four years to actually really get serious about things, so... Yeah, I thought this would be uh, the perfect time to talk about this and kind of go through all of the different options that people are talking about and then uh, do what I do best, critique the hell out of them. <laughs> I would say there there's probably a case to be made for some of these options, but others are downright horrifying. Um, and as a global community, it's going to be difficult to regulate. I mean, some of these things... I'm kind of being vague about them now, but, you know, some of these things, it's going to be difficult to stop rogue states or just rogue wealthy individuals who want to try some of these out from going ahead and doing them without, you know, the consensus of the global community. So <laughs> good times. Um, so I'm sure everyone has seen the IPCC report or has heard about this, that things are happening much faster than... Well, I don't want to say than we thought, because many of us thought this exactly, but things are happening much sooner than the generally conservative scientific community of the UN uh, had predicted initially. So the Paris Accord was meant to keep our warming to below two degrees above pre-industrial levels by 2100. Because two degrees was considered by everyone to be this this tipping point. You know, we can get up to two, that might be livable, but also that might be enough to push us into what's called runaway climate change, where we tip off a bunch of positive feedback loops, and then the climate becomes a runaway train that we can no longer control. So we didn't want to get to that point. So two degrees was kind of this cutoff. So during the COP discussions in Paris, or the Conference of the Parties discussions, uh, the global community decided that no, we actually have to make it 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2100, because two is kind of teetering on the edge. We don't even know if that is going to be too much to contain this runaway climate effect. So let's stick to 1.5. Well, yeah, we're going to hit 1.5 at about 2040. So that'll be lovely. Um, I just made a video and said that this will coincide uh, about with the collapse of the global fisheries in 2050, which will probably happen sooner than that. So 
yeah, looking <laughs> looking great in the next uh, several decades. So basically, we have about 12 years to turn things around in terms of the climate. Otherwise, we will face catastrophic warming. And, you know, who knows where we'll be at the end of the century. Actually, I was just reading an article in The Guardian that said, um, I mean, I was focused on Canada. It was talking about China, Russia, and Canada, and um, some, several other, other states. And it said that our climate policies are set to make the world warm by at least five degrees Celsius by 2100. So take a lap, Canada. Take a lap. <laughs> I mean, come on. We suffered through eight years of the Harper government. Now we have Trudeau, who is supposed to turn things around. And no, 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 no. Our climate policy is has us on track for five degrees of warming by 2100. And um, many other states uh, are, are similar. I mean, China has an excuse. At least they're, they've been transformed into the industrial powerhouse of the globe and make all of the goods that everyone consumes. So uh, clearly, they have they have a lot to do in terms of reducing emissions. But there are arguments that say that those emissions should actually be attributed to the countries that are consuming all of the goods, because, you know, we've just outsourced all of our production there. But anyway, long story short, we have a short time to turn things around. And so I've been seeing lately kind of debates emerge again about geoengineering. So I'm going to go through a number of possibilities here. There are two different categories of geoengineering that we can think about. The first is called carbon dioxide removal. So these are strategies that try to remove the amount of carbon that we have in the atmosphere and bury it either underground at the bottom of the ocean or wherever. So I would say that this category is more benign than the second category, but still has its scary issues. The second category is solar radiation management, which is frankly, <laughs> frankly, horrifying. Uh, and yet, somehow, when people talk about geoengineering, they're usually referring to some form of solar radiation management. So yeah, we'll, we'll dig into all of these things. But before we dive in, I just wanted to shout out the new patrons in these last few weeks. So thank you so much to Eric Eisberg, Marius, Edward Lando, and Ethan Miller. We really appreciate your support. If you have the means and you would like to support the continuation of this show, you can become a monthly patron donor at patreon.com slash vegan vanguard, or you can toss us a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, which is veganvanguardpodcast.com, or you can share these episodes with your friends and family, or even better give us a rating and review on iTunes. Um, we love reading your reviews. We've, we've gotten so many. The thing with iTunes is they only show you the reviews for whatever country you're signed into. So we have a ton of rating and reviews on the American one. And I always check the Canadian one. Um, and we have a bunch, a bunch there, but I, I'm like, oh, come on, come on, Canadian reviews. <laughs> um, 
Anyway, yes, thank you for your support. And so let's dive into all of these scary scenarios. So option number one when it comes to carbon dioxide removal is something called carbon capture and storage. And this is basically removing carbon dioxide from industrial emissions and storing it forever underground. Um, so effectively removing it from the atmosphere. So in contrast to the solar radiation management kind of strategies, this actually focuses on preventing CO2 from getting into the atmosphere or reducing the amount of CO2 that's actually out there. So I'm going to just play a quick clip here from the New York Times that explains how this happens. To fight against global warming, the world needs to sharply reduce emissions of carbon dioxide gas, which traps heat in the atmosphere. Power plants that burn coal or other fossil fuels emit much of that CO2, but a technology called carbon capture and storage, or CCS, can keep the gas out of the environment. When fossil fuels are burned, molecules of CO2 are produced along with other gases. In a carbon capture system, before going up the smokestack, this mixture of gases is sprayed with a chemical that attaches only to the CO2. The chemical is then heated to release the gas, producing a stream of pure carbon dioxide that's compressed and sent through a pipeline to a well. The chemical is recycled and used again and again. At the well, the CO2 is injected deep underground, where it spreads out into porous layers of rock and sand. Impermeable rock layers above act as a cap, preventing the gas from rising up and eventually out into the atmosphere. In theory, at least, the gas should stay buried forever. But CCS is expensive, and because it requires so much heat and power, it cuts the electrical output of a generating plant by as much as 20%. As a result, the technology has been slow to be adopted. The pace will have to pick up, scientists say, if the world is to reduce the impact of climate change. So that clip alluded to a couple of problems. Um, one is that it is energy intensive and quite expensive. So without, you know, subsidy or support, uh, a lot of companies won't be won't be doing this. And the second issue is, what if something goes wrong with the storage? So in theory, we'd be pumping all of the CO2 down far enough below these rock layers so that it could never escape. But what if it did? <laughs> what if there were an earthquake or something happened and a bunch of this CO2 just shot out into the atmosphere. I mean, that would be disastrous. Because if you think about it, the power plants that are going to be doing this carbon capture and storage, they're basically, they're still burning fossil fuels. They're, they're still emitting the same pollution. The, the only difference is that you're not letting that pollution escape into the atmosphere and you're forcing it underground. So first of all, people worry that this will make us complacent. And that's actually an argument against all of these geoengineering techniques is that they could possibly make us more complacent in actually addressing the amount of pollution that we are 
creating. Like it might allow us to think that we could still dig up fossil fuels and burn them so long as we just capture that CO2 and bury it underground instead of having everyone realize that, no, we need drastic measures to reduce all of this pollution and reduce uh, the CO2 completely. <laughs> we need to, we need to have a carbon neutral uh, society because we certainly can't be just pumping all the CO2 down there forever. I mean, it's that's not going to work out because if we're not slowing on the pace of that production of greenhouse gases and we're just putting it underground, then yes, if it were ever to escape for whatever reason, we would be screwed. There would be no way to recapture all of that uh, CO2 that we've forced down there uh, in a quick enough time. I mean, we, we would just burn right up. So there's that. As well, plants that are fitted with carbon capture and storage require 15 to 25% more energy than conventional plants. So this additional energy can increase emissions indirectly, such as emissions caused by the extraction and transportation of this additional fuel. This technology can also increase air pollution in terms of particulate matter and ammonia, and it's been linked with damaging the environment due to leakage of CO2 from the pipelines or the storage reservoir. And leakage of this CO2 underground has been shown to increase plant mortality, reduce growth, and create potentially severe localized damage to ecosystems. So with that in mind, a catastrophic failure and a catastrophic leak would obviously be devastating. So the CO2 that we would pump underground would need to remain there for hundreds of years, or potentially indefinitely. And the feasibility of this is uh, untested and, <laughs> and questionable, I'll say. But despite this, I would say that out of all of the techniques or technologies that I'll be talking about today, this is probably the most viable <laughs> um, or I guess the least uh, horrifying. Um, and very frankly, if we only do have about four years really of uh, really to turn things around, then something like this might need to start happening on a bigger scale as long as it's being done in conjunction with serious, serious work to reduce our overall emissions and bring those down to zero eventually. So an article in MIT Technology Review uh, says that the carbon capture era may finally be starting because the budget bill that President Trump, I can't even say that, <laughs> that the Donalds signed into law in February provided a huge incentive for capturing and storing carbon emissions. It didn't quite cover the entire cost, but the measure provided a tax credit of $50 for every metric ton of carbon dioxide burned underground and $35 for every ton put to work in other ways. And the estimated cost of carbon capture is about $60 per metric ton for coal-fired plants and around $70 for natural gas plants. So... And another $11 goes into transporting and storing the carbon dioxide. So, so the credit can't actually offset the costs of the electricity sector today. 
but uh, could make the difference in, you know, incentivizing certain plants to move to this kind of technology. So I don't know, I kind of grudgingly accept that people are going to start doing this, but I do think it is quite dangerous. And I just really hope that this doesn't, like I said, uh, make people feel complacent about actually moving towards zero carbon. <laughs> so the second technology in the carbon dioxide removal category is iron seeding. So this is adding iron to the oceans to increase phytoplankton, which absorbs carbon and delivers it to the bottom of the ocean. So basically... Yeah, you're causing these plankton <laughs> blooms and then the plankton die after about 60 days and then sink to the bottom of the ocean and then I guess trap carbon in their bodies. So again, I mean, like everything in this category, this is good in that it's about actually removing carbon from the atmosphere, for, from our environment. Um, but there are concerns that the ocean system is very complex and we don't know that much about it. And so this could lead to bigger problems down the road. People are, are really not sure about that, but that's uh, one possibility. There's also obviously just, you know, afforestation and reforestation. So adding additional trees to capture CO2 from the atmosphere. But um, yeah, I'm not sure there. I, I don't think that we could plant enough trees at this point to actually to do that. Um, there's also direct air capture. So this is using chemicals to absorb CO2 directly from the atmosphere and then store them once again in, in reservoirs. This is very expensive though and difficult because uh, carbon is very diffuse in the atmosphere. So to go out there and try and capture it all is, uh, yeah, it's a, that's a big job, but I guess something as well that people are thinking about. And then there's things like taking minerals that naturally absorb carbon dioxide and crushing them and spreading them on fields or the ocean. So this increases their service area so that they can absorb CO2 more rapidly. I think things like that are obviously more benign and things that we probably should be doing. Um, but yeah, so so these are some options, I suppose, that I'm sure are going to gain a lot more traction in the next four to 12 years. And although I'm really uh, uneasy about storing all of that carbon dioxide under these rock layers, um, I'm at least more open to that idea, given the, the time crunch we're in. What I'm less open to is solar radiation management. So let's dig into this. The first one, which is hilarious, is space mirrors. <laughs> um, I always picture Mr. Burns trying to block out the sun. Since the beginning of time, man has yearned to destroy the sun. I will do the next best thing. Block it out. God. Imagine it, Smithers. Electrical lights and heaters running all day long. But, sir, every plant and tree will die. Uh, owls will deafen us with incessant hooting. Uh, the town's sundial will be useless. <clears throat> I, I don't want any part of this project. It's unconscionably fiendish. 
because yes, this is exactly it. So we can launch a mirror the size of Greenland to take up a position between the Earth and the sun to reflect away the sun's rays from the Earth. Or we could launch a million tiny mirrors to create a cloud that reflects the sun rays. <laughs> so one of the concerns with this is obviously what the hell is that going to do to the flora and the fauna on the earth? <laughs> like what would it do to humans even to just be removing the sun's rays from our lives in such a drastic way? Yeah, also it seems incredibly impractical and what would happen if that mirror should fail or something like that, then what, the, the rays just get to the earth and we just burn up? I mean, I don't know about that. The next idea is something called cloud seeding. So this is adding salt water to clouds to make them denser and more reflective and thus returning more of the sun's energy. So I've talked about this in videos before, but things that are light in color, like things that are white or lighter in color, uh, have a higher albedo. And what that means is that they reflect more of the sun's rays back out into the atmosphere. So actually one thing, one idea of solar radiation management that I do support is painting our cities white. <laughs> Like if we painted all of our roofs white and our roads, why are our roads all black, right? That that actually has an extremely low albedo that absorbs the sun's rays, that traps more of the sun rays, sun's rays down by the surface of the earth and warms it more. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why cities are much hotter generally than rural areas. So I do actually support just painting everything white, giving everything a really high albedo. But this idea of cloud seeding, so some countries are already doing this. However, they're not doing it for the reason of uh, blocking out the sun. Countries like Thailand will fly planes up into the sky and seed the clouds to make them heavier so that they will rain sooner. So countries are already doing this in order to you know, have rainfall during dry periods. But of course, that would be really counterproductive if you're trying to um, fight climate change because, you know, flying planes up there would really undo the good you're trying to do by seeding these clouds. So there's this idea that we would have these uh, sea vessels, I suppose, going out on the sea and then spraying salt water up into the clouds. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what kind of energy would power these big sea vessels because obviously if they were emitting fossil fuels, that would be also counterproductive. Um, but once again, it's unclear what that would do to our environment or how well this would work. Um, I mean, also... <sighs> All of these, all of these solar radiation management proposals aren't addressing us continuing to pump up 
CO2 into the atmosphere. So if we're continuing to pump up CO2 into the atmosphere, uh, this would be terrible because then you cannot let these clouds dissipate or once the sun's rays hits everything that we're pumping up under the cloud, we're dead. So that's my biggest fear with the most popular of the geoengineering technologies, something called SPICE or Stratospheric Particle Injection for Climate Engineering. So this is basically trying to mimic volcanic eruptions in order to have a cooling effect on the climate. So spraying aerosol particles up into the atmosphere to prevent the sun's energy from getting to the Earth's surface and warming it. <laughs> so there are a lot of problems with this. I honestly find it absolutely terrifying and it seems to be the one that is most often talked about because I guess it's the one that has proven results. I mean, there have been well-documented, you know, cases of cooling climates after volcanic eruptions. So we kind of know what we'd be in for. However, just like with the cloud seeding, if we do not drastically reduce our emissions, then we could never let this dense ass cloud dissipate from above our heads because if we did, the sun's rays would just warm everything that we're pumping up below the cloud and destroy us. The second problem is that this would not save the oceans and the oceans are in real, real bad shape right now, guys, like real bad shape. So trees are a carbon sink. They absorb CO2, but oceans also absorb CO2. And if you absorb too much CO2 in the oceans, then they acidify. So they become acidic. It leads to dead zones and just a real destruction of our ocean environments, which are already dying. So yeah, the coral reefs are all very much threatened uh, with 1.5 degree warming or two degree warming. Like we're going to just lose all of our, all of our coral reefs. So yeah, pumping a cloud up into the atmosphere doesn't address all the CO2 poisoning the oceans and the waters that we breathe. Even fresh water uh, will acidify if there's too much CO2. Also, this will create droughts in the global south, particularly in Africa. So once again, we're talking about creating sacrifice zones of poor people of color in the global south around the world in order to save, well, I, I mean, I wouldn't even call it saving, in, in order to, I guess, prolong the lives of people in the global north uh, for as long as possible until we can't, uh, we have to allow this cloud to dissipate or something happens or whatever. So this is really a climate justice issue once again. <laughs> You know, uh, who's going to be using this technology? Who's going to be benefiting? Who's going to be suffering? And as climate change increases, um, there are parts of Africa that are going to be extremely drought ridden, um, completely desertified. So, uh, yes, adding more droughts onto that is not is not OK. So an article in 
The Guardian by Jonathan Watts is talking about the IPCC report and how the authors do mention that there are options for all of all of these um, geoengineering ideas that I've talked about. Um, it focused most on the SPICE stratospheric aerosol injection. And although the authors do not include these strategies in their pathways to meet the 1.5 degrees Celsius deadline, they do raise the possibility that it could be used as a supplementary measure if this target is missed. They say if mitigation efforts do not keep global mean temperature below 1.5 degrees Celsius, solar radiation modification could potentially reduce the climate impacts of a temporary temperature overshoot. In particular, extreme temperatures, rate of sea level rise, and intensity of tropical cyclones alongside intense mitigation and adaptation efforts. And they note that sulfur dioxide would change rainfall patterns, yes, <laughs> and weather circulation, as well as disrupting stratospheric chemistry and ice formation. It could also result in more ultraviolet light exposure, which would obviously have a negative <laughs> impact on human health. There's ethical and institutional questions about who would actually oversee these operations and which areas would be affected. There are really scarcely any laws to stop any country that wants to push ahead by itself with this, or as I said, any wealthy individual, which is fairly scary. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I mean, once you do it, you can't let it dissipate. What happens when we stop pumping these things up? The planet might just be suddenly hit by this huge surge in temperature. Also... Another article in The Guardian by Fiona Harvey says, reflecting the sun's rays would cause crops to fail. <laughs> Which, of course, of course, how can, we, how can we think that we can just remove the sun's rays from our lives and that that would be okay for humans, for animals, for plants? What are we thinking? So this article says, proposals to combat climate change by reflecting the sun's rays back into space would cause widespread crop failure, canceling out any benefits to farming from the reduction in warming, according to new research. Scientists studied the eruption of El Chichon in Mexico in 1982 and the eruption of Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines, both of which caused large quantities of sulfate particles to enter the stratosphere, and this created a veil which reduced the amount of sunlight reaching the Earth's surface. But in the study, the researchers examined the aerosol levels, solar radiation, and crop yields, and found that this had a negative effect on the yields of many staple crops, including rice, wheat, and maize. And they concluded that the impacts on crops of sending particles deliberately into the stratosphere would probably be similar, and that the beneficial effects on crop yields from the resulting cooling would be essentially negated by the loss in crops due to the reduction in sunlight, failing to remove the threat climate change poses to agriculture and food security. So I really hope that these things don't happen, all of these solar radiation management ideas. I mean, not only do I not want to live in darkness all the time, but it doesn't get at the root of the problem, and we would have to keep that up there for so long because we don't know what all of the latent warming effect of all of the CO2 that we're pumping up under the cloud, we don't know 
how much warming that would create. So how long do we have to sit here with this cloud over our heads waiting? I mean, the CO2 that is, wouldn't even dissipate if it's under the cloud. So I don't, I just don't see how this is being considered a viable option at all. Something that I always talk about, <laughs> I always bring these things up because I find them so ridiculous and horrifying. But hello, if you want to slash slash your carbon footprint in half, reduce your meat consumption. <laughs> go vegan, hashtag go vegan, reduce your, your um, carbon footprint. If we changed the way that we were living on this planet, even, I mean, obviously we need to change a lot more than that. Obviously we need to overthrow capitalism. Obviously we cannot keep running this unsustainable growth oriented system, but even just making small choices like that, I mean, that would have much more impact if we could quickly revolutionize our food system, which, you know, it would be difficult, but, uh, <laughs> but I would say more possible and more desirable than any of these solar radiation management strategies that are that are coming up in the news again. I mean, I guess if it's about just buying time, but I just I don't I don't see the point of buying that time. I don't see the point of <laughs> of buying time where we're living under this horrible dark cloud that we can't let dissipate. I mean, what kind of a life is that? Our, our crops are failing. There's droughts all over Africa, but hey, we're still alive and we've bought some time, some time to do what? To continue this? I mean, no. <laughs> I mean, no. I feel like this is a really, really interesting time to be alive. Really interesting, really scary. <laughs> I didn't really think that this would be my life at this point, um, having to overthrow an entire system or perish. But here we are. <laughs> I'm just realizing what a depressing episode this actually was. <laughs> I'm not even going to leave it on a on a positive note. I'm just gonna just gonna leave you with that. These are what people are talking about. I think that if uh, it comes down to it, we should be opposed to solar radiation management other than just painting things white to improve their albedo. Um, carbon capture and storage, I think that we can be a bit more optimistic about that, but very cautiously, again, very cautiously <laughs> has a lot of problems. But hell, I mean, we got to do something. We got to do something. I actually went to the uh, Toronto... People's Assembly on Climate Justice uh, conference or workshop the other day, and it was really inspiring. There was a lot of really inspirational Indigenous warriors there who are really on the front lines fighting this fight, engaged in so many incredible projects to both challenge the system, the colonial capitalist system of production and extraction and capitalist growth, um, and also in trying to take care of their communities and look look to the future, um, look towards pathways to sustainability in the future. And they made a point that, you know, we all have something to contribute. We all have our own skills and we really need to reckon with what those skills are. What can I contribute and how can I start right now? I mean, there's no more... There's no time to sit around being like immobilized, right? There's no time to sit around being like, oh, this is too big. I can't do anything. You can do something. We can all do something. So let's get out there and do it. Um, so hopefully that was 
<laughs> marginally encouraging after this super depressing episode. But yes, hopefully it was interesting. It's certainly topical. And yeah, I guess that's it for me today. Thanks for sticking around with me, guys. And we will see you in two weeks. Bye. Cheers.